Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Vanessa Lavarado's Sweet Tooth has made her a culinary cannabis celebrity and one of the rising stars of the new cannabis culture. Her marigold chocolates first brought her to the attention of the producers of Vice TV's Bon Appetit, where she has been co-hosting ever since. Having gone to Berkeley in Northern California, her love of food and cannabis found refuge under the tutelage of Alice Waters, the legendary founder of Chez Panisse, who helped usher in the farm-to-table cooking movement that has become the default mode for healthy eating everywhere. She takes her job seriously and believes in the power of pot to change how we think about our bodies and what we put into it. On the fast track to stardom, her career is destined to grow along with the cannabis industry. We talk about the role of women, the benefits of legal over underground, and how much weed her Cypress Hill co-host, Be Real, really smokes. Surprise, a lot. How have you been? I know it's been so long I know, since I know. We've caught up. It's been a while from my paper days. Yeah, which kind of like kicked off everything for me. Did it? Tell me how. You were the first magazine to publish my chocolates, the issue that I guest edited, the first food issue of Paper Magazine. And I don't know, there was something about seeing them in print. I was like, oh, I'm onto something. I should stick to it. Because <laughs> I feel like that's most of anything is just sticking to it. So. Hello. Yeah, that's my first tip for success is don't give up. Right. You get these kind of signs over over time that you're moving in the right direction and to listen to them is really important, especially in an industry like cannabis where, you know, you could see it changing, but there was really this moment when I knew I was like, oh, it's going to be mainstream, basically. People want to know about it. It's not this very small niche anymore, especially being in California. So been yeah. a wild past decade, I would say. It's been really amping up and changing. Completely. I've, I'm, you know, just immersed myself in it recently, and I'm learning quite a bit, and I'm fascinated and, and also interested in how it touches so many different subjects. Mm-hmm. You know, once, like in your case, for example, you have to be an expert in so many things at this point. I'm sure people are always asking you, about, you know, health and wellness, immigration, <laughs> social justice, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I'm not. I try to stay up to date and to read as much as I can. But right now I'm looking at cooking with cannabis in particular. And there are so many different theories about, you know, what temperature to decarboxylate and what is the best method, how to preserve the flavor. You know, coming from a culinary background, that's what I'm really concerned with is you know, making it taste good. And then also from this wellness side, thinking about preserving all of the plant medicine that is available in cannabis and having the lab tests to back up those theories, because otherwise it's just anecdotal information until you have controlled tests that are being done. So 
it's interesting. I think there's a lot more to learn and, you know, it's important to stay curious and to never think that you know something 100%. Well, that's one thing I'm curious about as well with regard to the food, the cooking. The question is, is cannabis make it taste better or is it just something that you have in there to, you know, help enhance the whole experience by having, you know, some high that comes along with it, which is great fun. But I'm just curious about the food taste since I haven't really had the experience of sitting with you in, in the Bang Appetit house, uh, enjoying some of those amazing dishes that are made. Well, it can taste like nothing if you distill the cannabis down to just THC or CBD. A lot of the plant matter has been removed. So the flavor can be nothing if you want it to be using distillate. And that's what a lot of edible makers in the actual market, you know, like bigger companies do for their edibles and to control the dose and to have it already activated, decarboxylated for them. Um, But when you're actually cooking with the plant itself um, and using the terpenes, you know, on Bang Appetit, we have distilled terpenes and those are really powerful. And so I don't know if it makes food taste better per se, but there is definitely a way to make food taste just as good as if it weren't infused with cannabis. There were dishes on the show that I really, I couldn't stop myself from eating. Like what? What was it? Uh, I mean, the unicorn, the unicorn churros that Nicole Rucker made, and mm-hmm. she has uh, the restaurant Fiona. She made a chocolate dipping sauce, and it was with Lucky Charms. I mean, I wanted to eat that. The souffle that um, Janine did on the Pot Chef episode, chocolate souffle. I mean, it was always dessert for me. I, <laughs> oh, and then Anna from Elska in Chicago, she made, well, they made this, it was a couple's battling each other, Stush and Bush and um, Elska restaurant. And they made this porridge with the yolk on the bottom of the porridge and then crunchy things like crunchy onions and they fried some lemon. So the lemon kind of pulled the, the limonene terpenes from the cannabis that was being used. And so I think you can really, terpenes are in everything. So when you're cooking and when you're cooking with cannabis, it's thinking about what dishes work well with the terpenes that are coming from that specific cannabis varietal being used. Well, I know that from my reading and just when I met you also about your history a little bit with food, right? Before we got to this point, you were already experimenting with food and with chocolate, right? Even before you started using it in cannabis, you you worked with Alice Waters. She's kind of a mentor of yours. And, you know, Alice Waters to me is changed everything, right, in in the world of food and had the biggest influence. And I saw somewhere that you described yourself as an old hippie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went to Berkeley and it was, it was when I was at Berkeley that I got into cannabis seriously. And I thought of think, I thought of it as, you know, not just something I could hide from my parents, but a legitimate career to follow because I was passionate about it and how it worked for me and what it did to open my mind. So this was in the 90s or was it? No, this was like in when I first first started smoking, like when I was in high school. Okay. I graduated in 2004. Were you and living so, in Canada then? No, I was in Canada. I was only there for 10 years until I was 15. Okay. In Canada, I didn't I didn't start smoking until I came to California. 
yeah, it wasn't until I was here that I started. Was medical marijuana already legal at that time? No, but I lived no. in Northern California, and so it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't hard very to hard find. To find. <laughs> and I knew the strain, you know, like they knew what bridal it was when I was in high school. So I'm, I think the first, the first one I had was Romulan, which is a really power. I think they were at that point, that might've been a medical cannabis. That's how they got that strain because it's a very heavy indica, but I don't know. I, I know that's what I was smoking and it, it laid me out and I, I really didn't enjoy myself but for some reason, I went back to it. There was something about it that I was like, yeah, that was weird. That felt like very uncomfortable at times. And then I just kept at it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you I just did a great job. I just tried different things. And I, you know, probably smoked a lot of OG Kush just being in, in California in Blue Dream. But yeah, it wasn't hard to find. But also, I just want to get back to Alice Waters for a second. Maybe you could help our audience understand who she is and what, how she changed everything. How she changed everything? Well, she, in Berkeley with Chez Panisse, she was the whole farm to table, knowing your purveyor, wanting to have these really beautiful, fresh vegetables that are seasonal and local to your area. And that came from Slow Food, which came from Italy. And that was the program I did in Rome, her program, um, the Rome Sustainable Food Project at the American Academy. We cooked with local ingredients. We did traditional recipes from Rome. And that kind of idea is throughout Italy, you can find those restaurants. I mean, throughout the world now, it's a worldwide organization to, to cook local and seasonal and to be sustainable. And I think that that should be applied to cannabis as well. Um, especially as this industry starts to boom, thinking about the sustainability of the industry and how to make sure that we are being responsible with the cultivation of this plant and the manufacturing of this plant, just like any other ingredient. So she's been very influential on me as far as not being afraid to do something different. She's a dear friend and was a mentor for me when I was at Berkeley. And I think at that time when I was at Berkeley, you could still open restaurants. You could still do pop-ups. You could still, you know, like Mission Street Food was in a taco truck. And then it went into the Chinese restaurant. And then Danny Bowen would be in the Duck Lloyd Chinese grocery store making mission burgers. You know, there was a real moment in the Bay Area for food when I was there. And I felt compelled to do something myself, which eventually became Marigold. It became the chocolates. So it felt very serendipitous looking back now. Right. Looking back, it's always seems obvious, right? Yeah. I in want- the minute, you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> it was not the route my parents would have chosen for me, but I'm very, very glad that I went my own way. Yeah, because so. you're a hippie. You're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but back to the hippies, because I wanted to just say something, because I believe that the hippies, the 60s generation, hasn't really received the credit for so many of what the accomplishments and how the lives we live today because you were giving, uh, you know, mentioning Italy as the source of slow food movement, which 
I'm sure you you know what you're saying, but the farm to land, you know, the homegrown, because you remember the hippies went back to the land and they grew their own food. They started having organic eating was, was important back then. So a lot of the trends that have now become commonplace were started by the hippies. And I believe Alice isn't Waters, isn't she a member of that generation as well? 100%. I think just specifically in the movement against fast food and this idea of slow food was coming was coming from France and coming from Italy, which was the norm. You know, it was normal to eat organic. It just was how they did it. And then with industrialization of food, that became not the norm. TV dinners became what you would do. And I definitely think that it was kind of this universal moment of we need to be eating organic. We need to be going back to the earth. We need to be thinking about how we can support our local farmers. And I think that that's also important with cannabis too. And I hope that that doesn't get lost with the legalization of cannabis. You know, these, it's hard to be a a cultivator and to get licensed and to go through all of the hoops to, to work in this industry. So there's a lot of conversation right now about the whole craft weed movement where potentially would allow small farms to survive. And your, your chocolate marigold company is kind of run along those same principles, isn't it? I mean, are your you're keeping yours kind of small, aren't you? Or how, what's your plan well, with right your company? Right now, it's really small. It doesn't. <laughs> it's, it's nowhere. I'm still with legalization. I had to find a licensed manufacturer to work with, and because I want to be small, the industry doesn't lend itself to small manufacturers because if a, you know, just thinking about lab testing, just think about that. Each lab test costs, at least with everything now, you have to have three levels of lab testing because it's like with the state involvement as well. I don't know what the pricing is per se, but say it's like $500. Well, if you're doing a small batch, how can you you do that? Your margins, you just wouldn't be able to actually run a business. And that's if you pass the test. If you don't pass that test and you're more than 10% off on your potency or anything goes wrong, you have to pay to destroy it. Wow. So for a small business like me, I feel like I'm trying to do it with my hands tied behind my back. I'll figure it out. I'm patient. And because of the show and everything else, I feel confident that I'll be able to find a way to do that, to remain small. But it's been, I just want to work with the right people. And so I'm trying to be, there was also another regulation that had come out before that is now people have found a way around it. But the 5032B um, was saying that you couldn't work with a licensed manufacturer if you didn't have a license yourself. You know, I can't afford a license. <laughs> I'm just not, I, I, I just can't. That would mean that I couldn't work with anybody who has a license. And these manufacturers need to work with other brands as well because they can't just, you know, it's so expensive to operate in this industry. You can't just do one brand. So, I mean, I think it's really 
I'm interested to see how it shakes out over time. Um, but yeah, Marigold will always stick to the ethos of good, clean, fair, meaning, you know, I want to source the cannabis responsibly using CO2, making sure the oil is clean, doing all of the lab testing. And I try to be as sustainable as possible with the packaging. But if you look at the child-resistant packaging that's available, it always has to have some sort of plastic coating to it because if children can bite through it, that's not allowed. So, I mean, it's wasteful to me. Yeah, a lot of the issues you raise sound like they also pertain to the small farmers. Right. On the same, right? So expensive to, to be in the system. My friend in Humboldt, she's been, she's jumped through all of the hoops and she's been doing it for, you know, decades now. She's been growing up in Humboldt and she gave me the first cold water hash I ever used for the caramels um, and has been really supportive of me over the years. And she just, she had to do so many things to make her property up to code to get a license, a local license and then a state license and the legal bills it's a lot. And then the equity programs in Los Angeles, people holding on to leases and paying rent on properties, hoping that they're going to get this license from the government. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but I think it will, it'll settle. It just takes time. It's so new. It's so fresh and things are changing daily. You know, the government, they're building a whole new section, you know, they're creating a whole new program, a whole new industry that they have to regulate, and they have to regulate it on so many levels. Why? You know, from my perspective, since I mean, I'm not in the industry, uh, you know, I feel like the, all these regulations stem from a mistake that was made originally by outlawing it to the degree that it was because it was categorized in this category, you know, with, with hard drugs for other political reasons. And so now, you know, that was sort of where this, the baseline was. So in order to move it into the legal market, everyone has to address that. It doesn't need that kind of oversight to the same extent. I mean, talk right. about, you know, liquor, for example, right? Because we know they have it in funny colors. They have it in, in, in packaging that looks like it'll be attractive to young people as well. And right. doesn't seem to be any problem there. Right. It's not good if children consume edibles or cannabis. I mean, we should avoid that. But I also think that that is up to the parents to keep it out of their hands, you know, and, and put it in a place that is safe. Right. The liquor, where the liquor is, where your gun is, what, you know, all these places right, exactly. you don't want kids to go. Exactly. And I think, you know, we're while we're trying to keep children safe, we'll sim simultaneously polluting their earth that, <laughs> that we don't need to be doing that. It's already, be, you know, it's already happening everywhere else. Why can't this industry be a place for opportunity to immediately have change, you know, and to implement um, a structure that is thoughtful of just everything. It's hard. I, I try to be understanding and try to be patient because I can't imagine being in the shoes of whoever is having to make all of these decisions and to be under so much pressure to create an industry that functions. And I know like taxes are high right now, 
I think that will get competitive between the cities. We'll see them dropping in different places because that depends on where you are. You mentioned that you had issues with some of the comments made by your former host or co-host. Um, bon it's just, just I don't think we should be, you know, yes, you could probably find it cheaper, better on the black market, but. <laughs> so Abdullah was going off on, on talking about the problems with the legal market and how in some cases it, you can do better with the quality and the price on the black market. I'm told that that isn't 100% true. At least other people I've asked about it are saying, well, it's not true, certainly about the quality. I feel like one of the big benefits of the legalization is the quality control aspect, so you know what you're getting. And therefore, you know, people aren't putting chemicals and things that are actually making it dangerous, that will make it dangerous, where right. it doesn't start out as dangerous. So the legal side of the packaging in terms of what's in it, so you know you're getting what you want, that's, I think, right. is really helpful. That's where the government comes in. That's where regulation is. That's why I say I try to be patient. I try to be understanding because it's important to keep the consumer safe. You know, I think that we can sometimes try to be too safe and those things will start to change as people say, hey, we don't need to do this. We can do it this way. And that's what's happening with the regulations. But as far as finding things that are better in the black market. I've always wanted to support the businesses that took this seriously. The Prop D dispensaries were who I worked with when I first started under Prop 215 making chocolates for dispensaries in Los Angeles because they were the ones that were getting rated. They were the ones that were putting themselves up to bat saying, hey, yes, this is what we do. Put us on a list. We're going to pay taxes. We're going to pay Measure M. And that goes to creating this industry. That goes to, hopefully, I mean, we need to look at where the tax money is going. It needs to go to, you know, the social equity programs. It shouldn't be going so much to enforcement. But that's all important. So I don't know. I like to vote with my dollar. And even if you could, if you're somebody who's really well-connected, find cannabis for less money on the black market, I don't, personally, I wouldn't do that. So I've always supported legal, legal businesses. Yeah, I understand. At the same time, though, just to tip the hat to the people who were there earlier, who kept the culture alive, who kept, who grew the strains that everyone is still smoking today and were in the illegal market, of course, some of them were good and some were not so good. Some, the cartels, you know, were out there as well doing kind of crazy shit. So, you know, not all of it was great, but a lot of those people who kept the tradition alive in the face of all the prohibition, you know, they still deserve some credit and some way that we can keep them in the culture today. Right. I think that that will happen. I don't know that many people who have, who are, part of the culture that have shunned the legal market. Well, in New York, you know, for example, or all these other states where it's not legal yet, there's, you know, I know people who are coming to New York from whether it's California or Canada, places where it's much easier to, to get. But when they come here, you have to know somebody. You can't just go into a store necessarily. I'm sure they're pushing for it to be legalized there. I mean, there wasn't, in California, there was definitely a pushback, people not wanting it to be regulated and not wanting to have to go through all of these hoops to get a license. I understand that. And 
it should be easier. And hopefully, as more and more states become legal, they can look to other states and to see how they can improve on those regulations and make it go smoother. California is massive. So it was just like such a big industry to regulate. Well, it already was growing so much anyway. Right. That was the basically where most of it was coming from in the United States. Right. So it had that previous history. I also want to ask you a little bit about being a woman in the industry. I recently looked through an issue of High Times magazine. They did the 100 Most Powerful People. And I think maybe three women were there. I think, you know, one or two African-Americans. But let's just talk about the women in the industry. Do you find that this brotherhood of, of bros, is that something that you have to deal with on a, in a real way? Or is it just cool, all cool? Every industry. I think that's just the, I think that's just how it is everywhere. You know, with cannabis, women want to support other women, for sure. And I think that coming from, you know, this gray market, I always, to feel safe, sought out women. That's why I mentioned my friend Mary up in Humboldt who grows, you know, I was getting my cold water hash from her. I just felt safe working with her. And when I first went to a dispensary, because it's not like I I went to dispensaries over the years, but I never felt comfortable because there were, they were usually owned by men. And how many of them were going to understand these beautifully packaged chocolates with origami boxes holding them? It was, it was just, (laughs) wasn't the right time. But whenever I found a woman in the industry, I just always felt safe. And I think that there is definitely a strong movement for women, women working together and supporting each other. That's where I come from. I can say personally that I think that it's great that more and more women are in the industry and feeling like they can find a career in cannabis. So, Yeah, unlike the other industries that have already have this long history that you have to deal with, I feel like here you can shape the industry. You can be at an early stage here where for a lot of these issues. So women here have like a better position in some ways to have an impact to, you know, help shape how we look and think about it. Right. But, you know, I would say in cannabis over the years, women have been objectified, you know, bud tenders. If you walk into a dispensary, it would just be all women at the counter in tank tops. And it didn't (laughs) feel like they were necessarily being empowered I think when I went to Cornerstone Collective in Eagle Rock, that was the first time I went into a dispensary and they were educated. They wanted to help their patients. It wasn't just about, oh, this is sativa and this is indica. This is really going to get you super, super high. It was like, what do you specifically want to use cannabis for? Oh, you have IBS. Well, maybe you should try, you know, suppository or if you have trouble sleeping, maybe you should try the own edibles, bath salts, you know, and I think that that's really what I'm starting to see now with this regulated market is people wanting to bring knowledge to the table and to represent everybody. And yeah, I think that it's like you said, we can really shape what the industry looks like. So hopefully it, it comes from that, that hippie spirit of inclusiveness and respect 
for for nature and respect for other people. Do you think there'll come a time where it'll be more like beauty products for women and for men so that more of these cannabis products will be marketed specifically for women and specifically for men given their different needs and desires? I think that they already are. I think that you can see that now with vape pens, different different vapes and the dosist is pretty seems pretty feminine to me, the little vibrating white pen. Whereas there are some that are more gender neutral. Yeah, I mean bath salts is a man really gonna I mean, maybe I don't want to stereotype about gender. I don't think it has to be and maybe that will be that could be an approach to it is not having it be this binary thing of, oh, this is for a man, this is for a woman. It's like everybody has needs. I can't really think of specific needs that cannabis would provide for a man. Other than for women, I think for menstruation, cannabis is like, that was meant to happen. I think my theory is that you know Alice B. Toklas talks about bringing the brown, her famous brownies to play you know, for her monthly tea with her, with her lady friends. And I think that that was probably to do with like coming together when you're in pain and sharing these brownies, um, to make you feel better. That's just my theory. How about (laughs) sex and cannabis? Yeah. Sex and cannabis is great. You know, cannabis makes things taste better. It makes things feel better. It plays with your perception of time So, you know, what feels like an hour could be a minute, and that's very helpful. But do you feel like there's different strains or CBD products that are best for sex? I mean, I know there's the lube, like there are different lubrications. I just like to be high. I like to smoke. I'm trying to think if there's anything that would be specific for, for that. So opening in the market, looking for, didn't you say something in one of your talks about finding that space? Right, finding that. (laughs) I think that there are definitely brands that use those different effect-based approaches to cannabis, like Candescent is specifically, they they don't provide the varietals that they use. They look at the effects that the different varietals create and they group them, you know? So they'll have one for kind of an aphrodisiac and I think dosis does that as well so it's it it's interesting to think of it in that way I'm not so specific I'm not like oh today is a day that I want to feel up so I'm going to smoke green crack unless I'm in pain and then usually I, I use a heavy indica just to help with that you even use it for yoga, for activities, I understand, right? I love to eat an edible and go to yoga. I love to eat 10 milligrams, go to yoga, zone out, because you're really supposed to be focused on yourself. You don't want to be looking around the room. And it really allows me to be introspective and breathe and go through the flow of class. So yeah, I love to eat an edible. I think it, it lends itself to exercise very well because solitary, almost like solitary exercise. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily play a game of tennis where balls are coming at me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, swimming or something like that, where you just have to breathe and get into a rhythm. I think it really helps. I noticed on your show 
recently, I believe it was recent, you sometimes have athletes on as guests, Drew. I saw Al Harrington and Matt Barnes, for example, two basketball players. Do you ever get a chance to talk with them, or did they talk about what it was like in when they were playing professionally? Did they ever play while they were high or anything like that? Yeah, I think Matt Barnes talked about it, but he was saying that he would wait until after. I can't remember. That was So that was a thought leaders dinner that we did. And I know they specifically talked about while they were still playing, they would be fined for using cannabis as well. From the drug tests, you mean they would be tested? Yeah, and then they would get fined. And, you know, they needed it for recovery. They're playing. He said they would play like three games in a day. And I was like, what? That's crazy to me. I mean, it just... Yeah, maybe in practice and stuff, but the, right. you know, generally the games are not you know one, three a week maybe would be a lot. But that's a lot, like just playing all day. I'm sure the training that they go through. Oh yeah, it's intense. To in shape to to do that, and it, it they need a way to recover. And I think specifically for football, because your that, dad was a football player, right? Yes. Yeah, my dad was a, a football player in the CFL. And a lot of his friends were on, on opiates. That was what was prescribed. And, you know, obviously it still is. And people, they get addicted. And then, you know, your career is really short-lived. So then your, your football career is over. You're no longer making this money. You know, when my dad was playing, it's not like they really paid the players like crazy amounts of money. Um, and their bodies were just destroyed. I mean, some of the stories I heard, my dad can't, point his fingers straight, you know, they've all been broken. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he had multiple concussions and Ouch. yeah. I mean, if cannabis, I think that if it was more accepted and it wasn't, wasn't seen as this, you know, horrible drug that was going to send you down a spiral that actually the opiates that were being prescribed by the doctors, that's what sent you down that spiral. You know, I think a lot of people would have would have had other options to cope with the pain and the stress that is in their life. So I think that that's an important piece of legalization is this acceptance and that people can, can look to a plant to provide a lot of medicinal needs. You know, like, are you hungry? Well, it really helps with your appetite. And that has a lot of applications. Right, which makes me think about Bang Appetit, because I want to talk about that a little bit now as well. Because typically, you know, you would smoke first and then have your appetite. But here you do both, right? You smoke and eat. <laughs> and those it seems like so much fun, I have to say, watching the program, because one of the great things about cannabis is that it's such a social lubricant, right? Everybody starts having, you know, suddenly you're in a fun party, Whereas, you know, without that, even with alcohol, it could be pretty stiff to go at some parties that you go to or dinner parties and you're sitting around with a group and there's not really, people aren't really talking or connecting. But that's very hard to do when you take the joint out and start smoking. Suddenly the place pops. Right, right. I think alcohol is, it works for some people, but it's a different kind of um, lubricant. But cannabis, it's like, I don't know. You ever go to a party and you just know there's someone who has a joint there? And you're, <laughs> I always count on getting getting high. I'm never worried that I'm not going to be able to find somebody 
who has Canada, wherever I am. Well, now with your reputation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, I don't think I, I have to worry about it before, but even, even before Bong Appetit. But definitely on the show, sometimes they don't expect us to actually smoke and to eat infused food. There, you know, Doug Benson didn't know that we would be smoking on the show, so he smoked before he came. I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, this is... This is the real deal. Vice has always been a platform that is open to cannabis. And I think that's really was exciting for me when that opportunity to be on the show happened. I was like, oh, this is that's cool that they're open to doing an edible cooking show. And you're working now with you have a co-host, Be Real from Cypress Hill and Miguel Trinidad, your your chef. They're both, I mean, we we all get along. It's super fun. Miguel is really sharp about the food and just like the techniques. And we geek out about like, oh, do you think they should do this? You know, what if they infused it in that way? And then Be Real, who doesn't necessarily have a culinary background, but he's just one of those people who really loves food. And so we all And just, weed, like, by the way. And yeah, obviously he's not, and it's not like he's what he's smoking on set. He brings his own. He has a tackle box of. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. With his funky feel tips, he has a joint roller. Well, one of my favorite parts of the show is when you go to the cabinet and open, you know, the reveal of the cabinet with all of the different strains in it. Right. I think that's hysterical to see that. Only in California. I mean, when once. The regulations, once it was legalized, the show kind of had to find different ways to stock the pantry. You know what I mean? You know, so to keep it legal, to work within this framework, it was really interesting because when we shot the first two seasons, it was like the Wild West, you know, right before legalization, because everyone knew it was about to get regulated. It was it was crazy. It was totally crazy in California. It was amazing. The amount of the amount of cannabis that people were were growing and that was available. But the show has changed over time as well. The format has changed and, and now it's more of like a competition show. Right. So it became a competition show. The old format, I mean, I think it it was great. I loved being in the kitchen, cooking with the chefs. We had some really talented chefs come on. A lot of them were my friends, you know, over the years, just being in the food world. And so to be able to cook with them and infuse their food was amazing. And then now it's a competition show. And I think what that brings to the table is a lot of creativity and seeing dishes, multiple dishes and seeing all of the different applications for cannabis. Because I think in the first two seasons, it was like, yes, you can put weed in anything, you know, there's a way to put it in any dish. And now it's kind of like, okay, knowing that get creative, you know, like go for it here. Here's the competition. And it's not very competitive, you know, <laughs> it's, no. uh, it's pretty laid back and we want it to be that way. We don't want it to be like this cutthroat thing where people are, you know, crying by the end of it and, we just want to be fun. <laughs> but I love also this other aspect of it that I see forming, which is the talk show. It's almost like a weed talk show. That That's a great format as well, to have people sitting around like, you know, the guests that you would have and like they do on an average talk show. Right, And then right. But smoking weed while you're talking, it's, it's why not? 
Vice likes to shake up formats and kind of make people feel comfortable and forget that the cameras are there. And then they, they glean the, the footage for these moments where people are just, they're smoking weed, they're relaxed. And it, just, it feels fun because it is fun. We're just, we're just hanging out and we're eating this food that these really cool chefs are cooking for us. And, you know, it's just feel really lucky or grandmas, you know, when we have grandmas come on and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And I feel like it's a real special moment in time, smoking with George Clinton, hitting a bong with Wiz Khalifa, Hope Solo came on, Licky Lee. I mean, it's been really fun to see the people kind of come out of the pot closet and mm-hmm. be on the show and, um, yeah, and eat all of the food <laughs> and get really high. Definitely. And also fashion, your fashion looks are also seeming to heat up a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm not cooking in the kitchen, so I can actually wear clothing that is, you know, less functional. I wore jeans and a t-shirt for the first two seasons pretty much. Um, kept it kept it pretty casual because when when you're cooking, you can't really have like sleeves and dresses. It just doesn't make sense. But now as a judge, I'm like, oh, well, you know, we have these themes and I just want to have fun. And I, I love fashion. And that's how I met Kim from paper was from modern appealing clothing. And that was actually where I started really developing my chocolates was in the clothing store in San Francisco in Hayes Valley. Right. With Chris and Ben. And I know Ben always was uh, also a connoisseur as well, right? Right. Yeah. And Chris. Yeah. They really pushed me to, they're like, you can do it. You should do this. They introduced me to a box guy. I was like, okay, this is how I get oh. boxes made. And he had boxes already that I could, you know, I could make work for my needs. And I was a super small business. So um, really just kind of grassroots and made it happen. But fashion, that was kind of the inspiration behind my chocolates. It was uh, Jill Sonder when, yeah, Rapsomism was there. And working at Mac, I just saw it as like this elevated, a way to elevate things the same way that fashion is, but with cannabis. So I don't know. I like to have fun. Well, now you're officially, according to Vogue magazine, the, sh- the chic cannabis chocolatier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, being in Vogue was pretty special. That was also a moment. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool to when Vogue wants to write about cannabis. So Definitely. So you're breaking a lot of barriers, and thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you. It was so nice to talk to you. I hope you'll let me know when you're in Los Angeles again. I will. In the meantime, I'll just keep watching you on the show. You're having so much fun. I am. The la- next two episodes... We have plant-based episode, and then it's the finale. And I actually, before the finale, smoked with Be Real and Miguel in the smoke box. In oh, his, shit. Like, yeah. I saw that, that too. That's crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. It was really fun. Wow. Okay. Enjoy. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash like culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs> <laughs>